is not easily broken. Y'all had enough? It's, uh, it's a little tongue-in-cheek, the title of the series, uh, because we've called it It's a Wonderful Life, and we're going to find out it really is, and there is meaning to all of this, but uh, we're going to wade through some things tonight and just talk about some stuff that's found here in this passage and just some observations in life. So let's begin with a word of prayer and just incite God's presence and wisdom to guide us. Our Father, we, we bow our hearts in your presence. Lord, we recognize our need for you. I think just being here is a bit of an admission that we understand that we don't understand at all and that we, we desire to know more. We desire to know you on a deeper and more intimate level. And Father, we know that you know us in, in, intricately, every detail, in every motion, every movement, every feeling, every hair that's on our head. And so tonight we surrender to you. We submit to you. Lord, I hope we can enjoy our time. I hope we can laugh. I hope we can think a little bit. I hope we can look in ourselves. I hope we can look at the world around us. Ultimately, Father, we want you to orchestrate every detail, physically, metaphysically, God, things in our heart, things around us. We just ask that your presence would envelop us, God, that we would, we would stand in awe uh, of who you are, and Lord, that we would discover the reason for which you've put us here on this planet at this particular juncture in time. And we'll give you the praise and the glory in Jesus' name. Amen. So, just to give a little insight, it's important that you understand when we read these things in the book of Ecclesiastes, the book of Ecclesiastes is primarily hyperbolic in nature. You understand what that means? Uh, hyperbole is uh, when you use obvious and intentional exaggeration, right? What I'm getting at is life is not as bad as it's laid out in Ecclesiastes. He's using very exaggerated speech, exaggerated language. It is considered a poetic book um, in the Bible. And so he's using a lot of hyperbole and a lot of metaphorical language to articulate certain concepts and truths. But on the other hand, uh, one thing that that we understand for sure as we read through the many depressing observations made by King Solomon in, in the book of Ecclesiastes is this. It is okay to be real. And this is the part that I, that I feel like last week was a bit shocking, that, that, we, that we are able to look in the Bible and recognize the fact that, as I pointed out, God uh, inspired the 66, what we consider the 66 canonized books of the Bible. We understand all scripture is given by inspiration of God. And yet God used the unique personalities, the unique experiences of the men that he, that he, that he led to write these books um, to give us different perspectives. And Solomon gained a lot of perspective throughout his lifetime, and God allowed him to pin down those things as dark and as depressing as they may seem. We arrive at this conclusion as students of the Bible that is in the presence of God, it's okay to be real. Now, that's not a moot point. That's not just an introductory statement. It's vital that we get that because I feel like sometimes we, we have this notion or this idea that in order to be spiritual, we somehow have to fake it till we make it when the reality is you can be real with God. Let me, let me just go ahead and tell you something about God, and that is simply this, God can handle reality. We're the ones who struggle with it. We're the ones who seek to escape it. We're the ones who try to often bury our head in the proverbial sand and, and just ignore the, the painful things of life. And if, if it's not there, it must certainly go away. But that's just not the case, is it? And so it's important that we recognize that you can be spiritual and you can be real at the same time. I had a conversation with somebody recently just, just to 
common phone conversation, was talking about some different things and uh, trying to figure out a time to meet up and discuss some different issues. And, and the guy said, hey, I, I got to bump uh, our, our appointment back tomorrow because my grandma died. And I was like, oh, dude, I'm sorry. And his immediate response, and I'm not being critical, but his immediate, maybe I am, but his immediate response was, oh, no, she, she's good, brother. She's with the Lord. And I was like, well, I, I get it, but it still sucks. It still hurts, and it's okay to embrace the hurt and accept the fact that, yeah, I'm, I'm glad that our loved ones are, are with the Lord, and I'm glad they get to go be with Jesus, but I still miss them. And, and, and I, just, I just say that to say that, that I, I feel like sometimes in, in, in the Christian realm, unfortunately, we have, we have sort of adopted this mindset that we have to be superficial, we have to be fake. If we're having a bad day, we got to put on a smile anyhow and, and pretend like everything's okay when the truth is sometimes things are just not okay. And it's okay to not be okay. It's okay to have a bad day. It's okay to be discouraged. It's okay to suffer loss and admit that you're hurting in that suffering. Life is not always sunshine. Life is not always going to go well. This isn't heaven. We sing about the sweet by and by, but we live in the nasty now and now. And we have to recognize the fact that, that you can be spiritual and you can be real and you can be honest at the same time. Because here's the truth of the matter. Sometimes you are going to have bad days. Sometimes you are going to suffer loss. Sometimes you're going to go through things that will absolutely knock the wind out of you. But even in those times and during those circumstances, God's still good and he's still on the throne. And so we can be real, but also recognize that we serve a God who's real, and he's a very present help in time of need. There's nothing spiritual about being fake. And so if you don't get anything else out of the book of Ecclesiastes, for crying out loud, understand it's okay to be real. God can handle reality. Amen? So here's what it boils down to. I'm going to give you a lot of introduction and then just a very short sermon, if that's all right tonight. If it's not all right, it's going to have to be. But what it all boils down to is simply this, and I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to summarize the entire book just yet, because I still have two more weeks after tonight. But what it all simply boils down to is this, life is complicated. It is. Man, life is complicated. And life is tough sometimes, and life brings us into certain circumstances that, that, that frankly, at the end of the day, we have to have God's help. And so I want to give you some introductory thoughts, okay? These, this is just introduction, and so don't expect too much out of it, right? Set the bar low. But, but seriously, let me just give you some introductory thoughts that, that, that will help us sort of summarize the concepts of Ecclesiastes. First and foremost, I want to say to you this evening that we have to recognize that life moves in cyclical rhythms. In other words, life is, is, is a consistent series of patterns. Now, the older we get, I think we naturally begin to see this. But the sooner we learn it, the better off that we'll be when we begin to understand that, that life does move in cycles. Life does shift in re repetitious patterns. Now, notice this. After God, in the, in the book of Genesis, flooded the earth and, and left Noah and his family, here is one of the promises that God gave to humanity that's passed on down to us throughout the ages. And it's simply this. In Genesis chapter 8, verse number 22, God said, While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, winter and summer, and day and night shall not cease. 
In other words, one thing you can count on is life is going to change like the seasons. One thing is certain, and that is that life will continue to flow, and and there'll be ebbs and there'll be flows and there'll be high times and low times. There'll be hot and cold. There'll be summer and winter, but you can count on the fact that life is going to move in certain rhythms. So hear me out. Metaphorically speaking, there will be seasons where it will feel like all you do is grind day in and day out. There'll be times in your life that you feel like all you're doing is plowing and plucking and planting down in the dirt, working yourself sick in the heat of the sun without a cloud in the sky. There will be times when you'll feel like that's all life is. It's a grind. It's just labor. It's just work. It's just intensity. It's just nose to the grindstone. It's just going through the motions time and time again, day in, day out, throughout the monotony. Sometimes that's how life's going to feel. And then there'll be times when when it seems like all it does is rain. Metaphorically, y'all following me? It just seems like Seems like you can't get anything done. Seems like you're, 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 being, you're being set down. You're being sidelined. You're, you, somebody hit the pause button, and, and all you're experiencing is downtime. Then there'll be cold seasons when it seems like there's more darkness than sunlight. Metaphors aside, we're experiencing that right now, Right? I've heard so many people say this year, and I don't want to get sidetracked, but I've heard so many people say this year that how, how, how difficult a time they're having adjusting to the time change. I, for one, freaking hate it at the very core of my being. I hate it when the days are short and the nights are long, but we have to recognize that's part of this, this cyclic rhythm, these patterns of life. And, and, then, and then one day, through the, through the plowing, through the planting, through the rain, through the wind, through all those different shifts and seasons and times that we go through, one day there'll be a harvest when it's time to enjoy the fruit of your labor. So, so this is what we have to understand, that we have to learn to live within life's rhythms. God designed it that way. God created the seasons, Right? God designed life to be moving, to be in motion. God designed it for there to be times when you feel like you're going to work yourself into an early grave. God designed it for there to be times when you find rest. God designed it for there to be times when you find recreation and you're able to enjoy things in life. One of the most difficult things that we have to learn to do in life is roll with the seasons. And part of that is we have to learn what it is to let go of the past. Seasons change. Times come and times go. People come and people go. I feel like this is like an old rock ballad or something. (laughs) But the fact of the matter is, you remember that that part we we looked at in chapter 3, verse 2 last week, where it says there's a time to be born and a time to die? The problem is we have a hard time letting things die. We have a hard time letting go. We do. And, and, and it seems, again, I'm not, I'm not trying to pick on the older folks here tonight. The older I get, the more empathetic I get. <laughs> but we spend so much time talking about the good old days that we fail to, to sip the nectar of today and enjoy the fact that God has given us this moment. 
And there's an essence, and, and I don't say this to be hurtful because I've suffered a lot of loss in my life as far as people are concerned, but there's an essence where we have to let those who have passed on pass on. And we have to, we have to move on and understand that, that life continues in a forward motion. And if we don't let go of the past, that doesn't mean we don't honor the past. That doesn't mean we don't honor the memory of our loved ones that have gone before us. But it does mean we can't let that destroy the rest of the life and time that we have on the earth. You have to understand that life comes in patterns and seasons. There's a cycle to all of it. There's a time to be born, a time to die, a time to plant, a time to harvest. There's a time for war and a time for peace. There's a time for everything that God has given us under the heavens. And that's one of the most fundamental concepts we have to get a hold of as we live this life. It's not always going to be summertime. It's not always going to be sunshine. It's not always going to be pleasantries. But we have to learn to move with the seasons. I got to go. Y'all ready? This is introduction. Number two, by way of introduction, you have to understand the symmetry of life. Now watch what he said. We read this a moment ago, but look in verse number nine of chapter four. He said, two people are better off than one for they can help each other succeed. If one person falls, the other can reach out and help. But someone who falls alone is in real trouble. <laughs> I was thinking of that old commercial, I've fallen and I can't get up. Anyway. Likewise, two people lying close together can keep each other warm, but how can one be warm alone? A person standing alone can be attacked and defeated, but two can stand back to back and conquer. Three are even better, for a triple-braided cord is not easily broken. Now, there are obvious practical applications in all that. All those statements are true on a very literal level. But again, let me speak for just a second metaphorically. Metaphorically speaking, the more balance we can find in life, the more effective we'll be in every other area. Here's what I mean by that. We weren't designed to be one-dimensional creatures. Did you know that? In broad terms, we were created, designed by God as tripartite beings, meaning we have a physical nature, we have a mental slash emotional nature, and we have a spiritual nature. We're designed by God to be in connection with him in, in our spirit. And yet God is concerned about every continual aspect of who we are as a, as a, as a whole, as a being. So, so, so the reality is when any one of these three primary parts of our being is out of line, it will affect the other areas, right? So understand, again, we could take this very literally and that's okay, but Keep in mind, this is a hyperbolic and a metaphorical book that, that, that Solomon wrote. And, and he said, listen, two are better than one. Having two things aligned is good. But having all three working together in concert together, he says a threefold cord or, or, or a triple braided cord is not easily broken. In other words, God has made us in his image. Help me out. God has revealed himself to us in three distinct ways. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, or Holy Ghost for you Pentecostals, right? Come on. Depends on what denominational background you, you have, whether you say Holy Spirit or Holy Ghost, and hold out the H. But anyway, the reality is being created in the image of God, we too essentially have three primary functioning elements to our being, body, soul, and spirit. So when he says a triple-braided cord or a threefold cord is not easily broken, there's this concept that we have to learn to live holistically. 
that we have to understand that, that, that the physical affects the metaphysical and vice versa, right? Now, you can ask, you can read any, any the best resource you'll ever find for your physical health, no doubt, is WebMD. Amen? Everybody had a runny nose, got on WebMD, and found out they had stage four cancer? Anyway, so that's a joke, but the point is, the point is there is a reality that, that emotional anguish and stress wreak havoc on our physical bodies. Okay, just, that's just one example. But, but physical, or rather emotional stress, anguish on our mind, which again is in the metaphysical realm, all right? Often our stress does have a face, doesn't it? Our stressors have a face and a voice and a name and an address. But... But it's often, it's not, it's not a, a physical, it's not a physical attack in many cases that, that does the most damage to our lives. Yeah. In fact, I can take, don't, don't think I'm a sissy, okay? I am, but don't think that. But I'd much rather take a punch than, than take some of the stress that people will bring into our lives. Physical pain is often a lot easier to deal with. You punch me in the face, I can punch you in the face. Tit for tat, right? Eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Amen? I like that law. I'm glad we're under grace, but I do kind of like that law. The reality is the physical is affected by the immaterial or the metaphysical. Emotional anguish and stress wreak havoc on our physical bodies. Now, I'm going to say something that everybody will understand, and that is, when we don't feel well physically, we tend to not feel well mentally. When you're hurting physically, you're not in your, you're not in your right mind, <laughs> right? Am I ever stepped on a Lego barefooted and lost your ever-loving mind in the middle of the living room, Right? I'm gonna kill who left this freaking light on the floor. Physical pain affects our our mental state. Physical pain affects our, our emotional health. And when we don't feel good physically and we don't feel good mentally, we don't feel good, let's just be honest, spiritually. And so we have to understand that one affects the other. Now, you can, be, you can be very healthy spiritually and still be sick in your physical body. Don't misunderstand what I'm saying, right? I've seen people in, in terrible conditions physically that had the joy of the Lord and the peace of God in their heart. But what I'm saying is, as much as we have the ability to, as much as possible, we need to take care of ourselves physically, mentally, and spiritually, and God is interested in every facet of our lives. Now, I'm not talking about things we can't control. Y'all hear me, right? You in the back. Can y'all hear me back there? Huh? Marco! Okay, just making sure you're there. I can't see. But, so again, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not speaking of things that are outside of your power or your control. But as much as we possibly can, as much as we have the ability to, we need to tend to ourselves and make sure we're keeping ourselves fit physically, fit mentally, right? And fit spiritually. You can't ignore one and expect to thrive and prosper in all other areas. 
if, if one area of our life is weak, certainly if, if two, two aspects of our being is strong, then that's, that's better than one. But he said a three-braided cord, a three-fold cord is not quickly broken when we can learn to live holistically and understand that God is interested in every single detail of who we are. We're going to do much better in all areas. Right? Is that making sense so far? I can't tell with some of y'all if I'm making sense. That makes sense? Okay. I'm going to give you the next introductory point. Here we go. Now, I didn't write this. I mean, I wrote this, but I didn't pin this concept. So don't get mad at me when I say what I'm about to say, but hear me out. Don't let your mouth write checks you can't cash. Now <laughs> you like that one for a plot twist. Didn't see that coming, did you? Notice chapter 5. I told you we got to cover three chapters tonight. Chapter 5, verse number 1. As you enter the house of God, keep your ears open and your mouth shut. <laughs> Everybody's an expert, ain't they? As you enter the house of God, keep your ears open and your mouth shut. It's evil to make mindless offerings to God. Don't make rash promises and don't be hasty in bringing matters before God. After all, God is in heaven and you are here on earth. So let your words be few. Too much activity gives you restless dreams. Too many words make you a fool. When you make a promise to God, don't delay in following through, for God takes no pleasure in fools. Keep all the promises you make to him. It's better to say nothing than to make a promise and not keep it. Don't let your mouth make you sin. And don't defend yourself by telling the temple messenger that the promise you made was a mistake. That would make God angry, and he might wipe out everything you have achieved. Talk is cheap, like daydreams and other useless activities. Fear God instead. I think that's all pretty self-explanatory. Don't you? He says, listen. Now, now, first of all, I think, personally, it's foolish to make hollow promises before God. In fact, he said, it's better not to even make a promise. Don't vow God. Don't vow to God anything. Now, you've got to understand the context in the Old Testament. It was a lot more rigid than the days that we're living in. None of what he said means that God's not interested in you coming to him with your problems and your needs right? You get that. But, but what he's saying is, don't, don't overstate or oversell yourself. Don't, don't over-exaggerate your own abilities or your own level of importance, because the reality is, it's better to remain humble than to be humbled. And I've been both, <laughs> right? Anybody in the room been humbled? It's not fun. So he says, listen, just don't, don't, don't be too loud about things that you're not sure about. Always be a student. Matter of fact, in the New Testament, there's, a, there's, there's actually a command uh, that says, don't be many masters or teachers. In other words, don't seek to always be in the limelight because you've got to understand that, that with that great notoriety comes great responsibility. So, so just know your place and keep your head down as much as possible. Don't oversell yourself. Always be a student. Don't overstate your abilities or your capabilities and, and continue in this mindset of, of, you know, there's a whole lot I don't know. Right? 
I'm not that old. Say amen on that. I kind of hate you guys right now. <laughs> I'm not that old, but I'm old enough. I've learned that, that, uh, that I, I, I feel like, at least in my own estimation, that I know less now than I, than I was certain of in my 20s. I was much more dogmatic about things in my, in my early days. Y'all too? It, it's amazing that, that, we, that, we, that we reach this place where when we feel like we really kind of have it all figured out, it, it's, like, it's like God, and it, it is the grace of God that will remind us of how little we actually know. And so what he's saying here, and again, God's not saying, keep your mouth shut, don't talk, nobody wants to hear from you. What he's saying is, you know, be careful with your words, because as, as Solomon wrote in the book of Proverbs, chapter 18, verse number 21, death and life are in the power of the tongue. I spend a great amount of time dealing with problems that have been created with the things that people have to say. That if they could have just kept their mouth shut, kept their opinion to themselves, or not said that, well, life would be a lot sweeter. And so when the Bible says death and life are in the power of the tongue, understand this is not that name it, claim it type stuff, right? I've been running around saying I'm a millionaire for years and it hasn't worked out. Or to go along with our series like Peter Bailey, I wish I had a million dollars, right? It's not a name it, claim it, you can't speak it into existence, but it does articulate the fact that our words carry a lot of weight. And, and, the, and the way that we use our words, the way that we communicate, the way that we speak to people is vital. Now think about how important words are in the economy of God and within the kingdom of God on the earth. Words are so important that, that when we are to the point that we're ready to receive Christ as our Savior. You know what I'm about to say. The Bible says if you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus, you will be saved. Now that doesn't mean a person has to audibly cry out to God for salvation. It is the cry of the heart that God hears. But God is communicating to us and, and, and placing this, this, this burden of understanding upon us that, that the words we speak are so vital that you can speak life to people. You can speak words of truth. You can speak words of encouragement. You can build people up with the things that you say. Or conversely, you can tear people down. Words can build a life and words can destroy a life. Reputations have been ruined just by the power of the spoken word. So he said, if you're going to genuinely enjoy life, if you're going to get the most out of life, you have to learn how to control the words that you speak. Because the words we speak are so important. He says, when you enter the house of God, keep your ears open and your mouth shut. Now, this is the same Bible that says, enter into his presence with thanksgiving and into his courts with praise. You ought to come in with a worship, a word of worship in your, in your heart. But at the same time, he said, you know, why don't you just maintain this mindset of a student? You haven't learned everything yet. And instead of always wanting to tell everybody how much you know and how smart you are and how educated you are by listening to five episodes of the Joe Rogan podcast, maybe just calm down a little bit and think and process and seek the mind of God, seek truth. We got to go. This is introduction. I only have 25 minutes left. 
told you last week we set a new precedence for what time we get out on Wednesday. Introductory point number whatever this is, three, I think. Learn to love the life that you've been given. Now, you're going to see this theme recurring throughout the book of Ecclesiastes, but notice chapter 5, verse number 10. He says, those who love money will never have enough. How meaningless to think that wealth brings true happiness. The more you have, the more people come to help you spend it. So what good is wealth except perhaps to watch it slip through your fingers? People who work hard sleep well, whether they eat little or much, but the rich seldom get a good night's sleep. There is another serious problem I have seen under the sun. Hoarding riches harms the saver. Money is put into risky investments that turn sour and everything is lost. In the end, there is nothing left to pass on to one's children. We all come to the end of our lives as naked and empty-handed as on the day we were born. We can't take our riches with us. And this, too, is a very serious problem. People leave this world no better off than when they came. All their hard work is for nothing like working for the wind. Throughout their lives, they live under a cloud, frustrated, discouraged, and angry. Even so, even so, he said, I've noticed one thing, at least, that is good. It is good for people to eat, drink, enjoy their work under the sun during the short life God has given them, and to accept their lot in life. That's so profound. I'm reading the New Living Translation. If you have a different version, you might as well just listen as I read. All right? It'll be much easier to understand. He said, it's, 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 it's so profound when we can accept our lot in life. And it's, it's a good thing to receive wealth from God and the good health to enjoy it. To enjoy your work and accept your lot in life, this is indeed a gift from God. God keeps such people so busy enjoying life that they take no time to brood over the past. That's amazing, isn't it? He said, when you will learn to love the life that God has given you, stop looking at everybody else's life, envying what they have and what you don't have. He said, I promise you the grass isn't greener on their side of the fence. Learn to enjoy your lot in life. Notice chapter 6, verse number 9. He said, enjoy what you have rather, rather than desiring what you don't have. Just dreaming about nice things is meaningless, like chasing the wind. He says you have to learn what it is to just accept who you are. Not, not in our toxic ways, not in our sinful behaviors, but accept the reality of the person that God has designed you to be. And, and understand that once you do that, if you'll accept your lot in life, accept where God has placed you, accept this, this, this juncture, this journey that you're on, then at that point, he said, you'll, be, you'll, you'll have so much time just enjoying the life God's given you, you won't have time to worry about what you missed out on. Now, okay, here's where I'm going to use a che- cheesy example from one of the greatest Christmas movies ever written. You remember the story? Of Peter Bailey. Huh? If you haven't seen It's a Wonderful Life, you are behind on the series already. But Peter Bailey, in his youth, we see in the beginning of the movie, dreamed of of, of what? Traveling the world. He's going to go to college. 
get a degree, become an architect, design commercial buildings, build skyscrapers, right? Ideas so big. Oh, what do you want? You want the moon? Well, I'll lasso it for you and bring it down. All that starry-eyed, right? This, 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 this sort of mindset that wasn't founded in reality. But he had all these big dreams, all these big visions, all these big ideas. And then what happens? He ends up settling down in his hometown of Bedford Falls. Marries, has kids. And after losing his father, suddenly has to stay and take care of the old building and loan. Right? That's the story. Fought the devil day in and day out, a.k.a. Mr. Potter. Did his best to see to it that, that, his, that his friends and loved ones who just live simple lives and punch a clock 40 hours, 50 hours a week could at least afford to live in a nice little home have a little something for themselves on the earth and keep, you know, keep Mr. Potter, keep the devil from taking everything. I mean, there's so much symbolism in that movie. But he figured out that true joy in life wasn't found in traveling the world, wasn't found in the skyscrapers, wasn't found in all of his pipe dreams. True joy was found in the relationships that he built through the years by being a servant to his community and accepting the fact that he was designed, even though it seemed meaningless at times, and even though his life seemed to, to be riddled with monotony, he recognized the fact that, that, that God had designed him for a profound purpose. And when your life is surrendered to God, I, 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 I sort of a while back, God sort of gave me this, this, this understanding that we need to learn what it is in life to be extraordinarily ordinary. And what I mean by that is, is, is that God will take the simple things that we do when, when we're empowered by His Spirit, when we're led by the Spirit of God, God will take the things, the conversations, the actions, the unseen kind deeds that you do for people. God will take all of those things that you didn't post on Facebook. And he said, I, the one who sees in secret, will one day reward you openly. Because when you give your life to God, there is no ordinary task. Everything in God's economy is extraordinary because God can take the simple and make it profound. It's revolutionary once we understand this because we bear so much weight. We think that we have to carry the weight of the world. We feel like we have to carry the burdens of those around us when, when the fact is you weren't designed for that. You weren't designed to conquer the world. You weren't designed to be God. There's only one God. And so the best that we can do is live a life that's surrendered to Him. And as we surrender to Him, God will use the ordinary things that we do, the kind gestures, the handshakes, the smiles in other people's lives to impact them, often for eternity, when we will yield it to God. So herein lies the secret to life. As much as possible, love the life that you've been given. Now, that was all introduction. Let me give you a quick sermon. Because 
as I've studied the book of Ecclesiastes and just sort of poured over chapter after chapter after chapter that has this, this cyclical pattern of, of being, again, in, in, in very plain terms, depressing. Depressing. The book of Ecclesiastes, if we read it on a surface level, is insanely depressing. Can you all admit that with me? Is that okay? I know it's God's word. I'm not trying to correct it. I'm just saying... It's, it's incredibly depressing until you crack the code. There's a code to the book of Ecclesiastes. And so, and so here's, here's the code to understanding the book of Ecclesiastes within all the dismal, depressing observations found in this life. All those things are truly useless until you find your purpose. That's the point. Everything in life is meaningless. Money, relationships, labor. It all means nothing until you discover your purpose. So the two most important discoveries you will ever make in this life. You ready for it? Number one is the will of God. The second most important discovery you'll ever make in this life is the wisdom to recognize the will of God. The will of God is the most important thing you'll ever find. The second most important thing, and the two go hand in hand, is the wisdom to know the will of God. And I'm done. But let me give you this. Romans chapter 12, verse number 1. Paul said, I beg you. It's one of the most, it's one of the most powerful pleas outside of the plea for people to come to Christ through faith. Outside of that, it's one of the most powerful pleas you'll ever find in the Bible. Paul said, I'm begging you. I'm pleading with you by the mercies of God that you present yourselves, your bodies, your entire being, a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. You are the design of God, not the designer. So we present ourselves back to him, recognizing that he made us and he formed us and he predetermined our path in life. So the best thing we can do is present ourselves to him as, as a living sacrifice. And then he goes on to say this. And don't be conformed to this world. Get out of the system of this world. Get out of the flow of this world. You have been born again as a new creature in Jesus Christ. So you're not confined. Hear me out. You're not confined to the natural rhythms of this life. You'll go through the seasons just like everybody else, but you're not confined to the limitations of this world because you've been made anew in Christ and you have been brought into the kingdom of God. That means that we now live under a new spectrum beneath God's throne. We're his children. He's our God. He's our king. And as we pray, your kingdom come and your will be done on the earth as it is in heaven, we recognize that we step into a new dimension. That now we can find this, this reality that God has put us here to do more than eat and sleep and live and breathe and die. God has put us on this planet for a purpose. And all of life will be meaningless until you discover the purpose of God for you. God has a specific purpose for you. And so all the negativity, all the depressing stuff in Ecclesiastes goes away because what Solomon is saying is everything outside of the economy of God is useless. 
But when you find who you are and whose you are and you pursue him and you have the wisdom to adapt to the will that he has placed upon you and the purpose for which he's placed you on this planet, when you discover that, then you can have real joy and you can have real peace. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. That good and acceptable and perfect will of God. I'll close with this. It's only the second time I've said it. I still have three more times. I've heard a lot of explanations as to why Paul said in Romans 12, verse number two, the good, the acceptable, and the perfect will of God. I've heard it said that God has a, a good will, but he also has a, an acceptable will, and then he has a perfect will as if there's like, you know, I'll take option three. I don't necessarily see it that way. I won't split hairs over it, but I don't see it that way. When it says, as beings living on this earth, not yet having received our heavenly bodies, we're still living in this realm of mortality. He said, if you'll submit yourself and let God be God and let God guide your pathway, then you'll be able to prove, you'll be able to understand, you'll be able to see what is the good, the acceptable, and the perfect will of God. Here's what I think that means. Again, I'm not dogmatic on this, but I think this is what it means. I think it means there'll be, there'll be seasons in your life. Remember all the shifting seasons? I think it means there'll be seasons in your life when the will of God will be good. That's good, isn't it? If you've, if you've been on this journey for any length of time at all, I can, I can testify as, as, as I've been saved now and lived for Christ longer than I, than I lived in the world as a lost person, I can tell you now that, that many times the will of God, as I've looked around at God's will in my life, I've said, you know, this is good. This is good. It's good. The Bible says he that finds a wife finds a good thing. I found a good thing in the will of God. It's good. But there will be times in the will of God as a believer, if you continue on this journey with Christ, that you'll look around and go, well, you know what, this kind of, kind of sucks right now. Man, I've suffered some loss. I've been through some bad situations. I've had people run me down. I've gone through, I'm not speaking of myself. Right? Had people let me down, stab me. You know, there are times that I think you'll look around at the will of God and go, you know what, this sucks, but I can deal with it. It's acceptable. Right? Are you okay? It's ah, it's okay. It's acceptable. I can go on. I can keep going. This ain't good, but I can live with it. But the ultimate crescendo at the end of our lives, I believe, as we stand in the presence of Christ and God begins to unveil all the beauty and all the details and the intricacies of the things that he brought into our lives, the hurts, the pains, the high times, the low times, the mountain peaks, the valleys. I believe when God lets us see the grander landscape of all that he did in us that we didn't even recognize in our time on earth before his throne, we'll say, you know what, Lord? It really was perfect. It really was perfect what you put me through was perfect. Sometimes it hurt and sometimes it was rough and there were times I thought it was going to bury me and I wasn't going to be able to make it. But God, now in hindsight, as I stand here in the beauty of your presence and I see all the canvas of what you were painting and putting together for me, God, I see now that your will was absolutely perfect. You remember Solomon said that God is able to make all things beautiful in his time? We have to learn 
when we can't see his hand, we can always trust his heart. And his will is good. Sometimes you'll just go, you know what? Whatever. I can live with it. It's, it's acceptable. But ultimately, one day we'll see that everything God has done is absolutely perfect. Perfect. Because he's good. And he's God. And he loves you. And he has a purpose for you. And true joy is found in the purpose of God and having the wisdom to recognize that in your own life. Does that make good sense? All right, let's all stand. I'm done. See how short that sermon was? Father, we want to just take a moment tonight. Individually, to submit ourselves before you. As the psalmist said, I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. God, you've meticulously brought unique circumstances, people, situations into each one of our lives tonight that have made us who we are. And in this moment, we want to just, with a fresh sense of surrender, yield our hearts to you. Father, recognize that the, that the, that the most wonderful thing that we could ever discover is your kingdom and your will and your purpose for us. So, Father, we, we submit to you and we ask you, God, to guide us. God, we pray that your will be done on the earth as it is in heaven. Have your way with us.